This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. Welcome to Starry Nights. Starry Nights is a program about astronomy, what there is to see in the night sky, and how it may have got there. We'll examine some of the myths and legends associated with objects in the night sky, and we'll explore some of the technologies that are helping us to unravel the mysteries of the universe. My name is Gary Sparks. I'm the director of the Holt Planetarium in Napier, the sponsor of Starry Nights. Planet viewing for this month. Mercury is an evening object. It's set only eight minutes after the sun on the 1st and just over an hour after it on the 31st, so it is virtually unobservable in December. Venus remains in the evening sky, but gets considerably lower during December, especially after being stationary on the 18th. Mars is in the morning sky, rising by the end of the month nearly two hours before the sun. Late in the month, it is less than five degrees from the similarly colored star Antares. Jupiter and Saturn are both in the evening sky, setting before midnight by the end of the month. The moon is some 4.5 degrees above Saturn on the 8th, and 3.5 degrees to the upper left of Jupiter the following evening. Early in December, Venus and Jupiter, with Saturn about midway between them, should be a fine sight in the western evening sky. Venus's surface is dotted with volcanoes and puddled with lava flows, but it's challenging to discern which of these features are ancient and which are more recent. Using data from Venus orbiting spacecraft, scientists can search for the subtle changes to Venus's surface and atmosphere that signal the presence of erupting volcanoes. Aside from the excitement of adding another item to the list of known active volcanoes in the solar system, figuring out which of Venus's volcanoes are active is important because volcanoes are a potential source of phosphine, a compound that arises from biological processes on Earth and is thought to be an important biosignature on Venus. In order to interpret detections of phosphine, we need to know how many volcanoes are actively producing it. A team led by Piero D'Incenso from Danzio University of Chiete Pescara, Italy, rounded up spacecraft observations of Venus's surface and atmosphere and combined them with findings from laboratory studies to build a compelling case for the active volcanism of Iden Mons, a two and a half kilometer high, 200 kilometer wide volcano in Imder Regio. The team bolstered their case with three key pieces of evidence. One, surface observations. The region surrounding Iden Mons shows signs of overlapping lava flows, the uppermost of which is coincident with a region of an unusually high thermal emission, which is thought to indicate a surface that hasn't yet been corroded by Venus's caustic atmosphere. Number two, laboratory work. Recent laboratory studies, which recreate the hot, high-pressure environment of Venus's surface to understand how it affects different minerals, have shown that chemical weathering, alteration of the surface material through chemical reactions with atmospheric gases, happens more quickly than previously thought. This means we've overestimated the ages of the lava flows surrounding Iden Mons. Number three, atmospheric observations. Venus's surface also interacts with the atmosphere on a macroscopic scale. Landforms, like volcanoes, generate standing waves in the atmosphere called gravity waves, not to be confused with gravitational waves. 
These waves can cause Venus's winds to slow down as they travel above a volcano. In the case of Aydın Mons, the winds slow down more than expected given the size of the volcano, which could be due to heat radiating from recent lava flows. Combining all the available evidence, Dincenzo and his and collaborators conclude that Aydın Mons has been recently active, perhaps within our lifetime, anywhere from 10,000 years ago to just a few years ago. Recently selected spacecraft missions should soon allow us to study Aydın Mons further, in particular NASA's Venus Emissivity Radio Science INSAR Topography and Spectroscopy, the Veritas Orbiter, and the European Space Agency's Envision Orbiter, both plan to keep Venus's surface in extremely high resolution, which is key for detecting surface changes due to volcanic activity. Sounds pretty interesting. A mysterious asteroid that travels around the Sun close to Earth may be a chunk of the Moon. Astronomers have been trying to work out what Kamaola Liwa was since it was first detected in 2016. But the chemical signature of this asteroid doesn't appear to be like any other near-Earth object, said Ben Sharkey of the University of Arizona. Instead, it appears to be closest to weathered space rocks brought back from the Apollo 14 mission, as reported in Communications Earth and Environment. We can't come up with a reason yet that explains it that doesn't involve something like the moon, Mr. Sharkey said. Kamaoa which alludes to a child that travels alone in a Hawaiian creation chant, is just one of a handful of space rocks known as quasi-satellites that orbit the sun but come close to Earth. These space rocks are not bound by Earth's gravity, so they are not considered mini-moons, and their orbits are usually chaotic, so they only stay in sync with Earth for a short period of time. But Kamaoa appears to be the most stable of all these quasi-satellites, and is likely to remain our companion for the next 300 years. It takes a slightly more elongated orbit than ours, and it travels around the Sun every 366 days. As it does so, it plays a cat-and-mouse game with Earth, much like two cyclists racing in a velodrome, explained astronomer Jaunty Horner at the University of Southern Queensland, who was not involved in the study. Sometimes it pulls ahead of us, and sometimes it falls back, so it looks like it orbits the Earth. But it isn't being particularly affected by Earth's gravity, Professor Horner said. At its closest point, it comes within 5.5 million kilometres of the Earth. By comparison, our moon is just 400,000 kilometres away. The asteroid was first picked up during a survey of the sky by NASA for near-Earth objects by the Pan-STARRS telescope in Hawaii. But even though it comes close to Earth, it's not very bright and it's very hard to see, Mr. Sharkey says. We can really only observe it for about a month out of the year. Half of the year it's between us and the Sun, and half of the year we're between it and the Sun. But that's exactly what Mr. Sharkey and his PhD advisor, Vishnu Reddy, have been doing every April, except last year due to COVID. This object is supposed to be stable for another 300 years, Professor Reddy said. Reddy said. That's a very rare thing, and it also gives us a chance to characterize it. <clears throat> when they observed the object using the giant large binocular telescope, they noticed something unusual. The light signature coming off the rock was a lot redder than other asteroids. At first they didn't believe what the data was telling them. We doubted ourselves and whether the data was real, Professor Reddy said, but comparisons with rocks from the moon convinced them that they might be onto something. As you get more space weathering, the infrared signal goes up, and that's something that is relatively unique just to the moon. Professor Reddy added the asteroid was like a missing piece of the puzzle that sits between craters on the moon and meteorites that land on Earth. 
For a long time, astronomers have been speculating that there should be things like this, because we see hundreds, if not thousands, of craters on the moon, and we know that rocks from the moon have gotten to the Earth without the astronauts going and bringing them to us, which means that impacts generated enough material that are delivering meteorites. But whether or not this is a chip off the old moon is still very much up for debate. While the object is very exciting, Professor Horner is not convinced it's a chunk of the moon. That is the best explanation we have, but it will not necessarily turn out to be the right explanation, Professor Horner said. It's hard to imagine a scenario where you could eject something that is 50 meters in diameter. That would suggest quite a large impact to do that, and Mr. Sharkey and Professor Reedy are the first to admit that they are feeling cautious. It's a big deal, right? You're claiming something is a chunk of the moon. That's why we're so, we were so paranoid for five years, Professor Reddy said. We really tried, in writing the paper, to make sure we were putting our predictions so that could be proven right or wrong, Mr. Sharkey added. Mr. Sharkey and Professor Reddy won't have to wait too long to find out if their prediction is correct, because Kamaoilewa is so close to us, we can easily send a spacecraft there to pick up rocks. And that is exactly what the Chinese National Space Agency plans to do in 2024 with a proposed mission called Zheng'e. If we can get a sample back from a spacecraft, we can compare it directly to the lunar rocks we have, Mr. Sharkey said. We can start to ask questions about when it formed. We can't detect that remotely. We can't say how old this object is without visiting it. Professor Horner agrees. If we recover a piece and study it in more detail, we could get a much better feel of whether it was similar to the material on the lunar surface. Even if it turns out not to be similar and kills the moon idea, it's still an interesting object. In the meantime, the team says they may get more data using the soon-to-be-launched James Webb's telescope, which looks at objects in infrared. James Webb is going to be great, but there's no substitute for getting your hands on the material, Professor Horner said. Well, be careful what you wish for. That leads me into the next story. A woman in Canada awoke in shock when a rock crashed through the ceiling of her home and landed on her bed, narrowly missing her but spraying grit and other debris on her face as her dog barked frantically. Police were called, and the culprit was initially suspected to be a construction site nearby, where work must have sent the fist-sized projectile onto the woman's pillow. But when the construction workers said they had not set any blasts, but had just seen an explosion in the sky, the consensus quickly became that the rock was a meteorite, the Canadian press reported. Ruth Hamilton had been fast asleep in Golden, a small town amid the Rocky Mountains in British Columbia, on the 3rd of October, when her dog began barking and she woke with a start. I've never been so scared in my life, she said. I wasn't sure what to do, so I called 911, and when I was speaking to the operator, I flipped over my pillow and saw that a rock had slipped between two pillows. It turned out there had been a meteorite shower in the skies above the western Canadian region that night. Hamilton plans to keep the space rock, and is very relieved she wasn't injured. I was in shock, and I just sat there for a few hours shaking, she said. The odds of that happening are so small, so I'm pretty grateful to be alive. Yeah, no kidding. You're listening to Radio Kidnappers, the voice of Hawke's Bay, broadcasting on 1431 AM and 104.7 FM. This program is Starry Nights. A Marsden grant has been made by the Royal Society of New Zealand, Taparangi, for the study of gravitational waves. In this Marsden Fund Council Award project, Professor Renate Meyer from the University of Auckland will lead a small multi-institutional team that will make core contributions to gravitational wave science and facilitate participation of Aotearoa New Zealand scientists in the International LISA mission. 
Gravitational waves, ripples in space-time caused by accelerating massive objects, were predicted by Einstein's theory of general relativity in 1916, but they weren't directly measured until 2015. Whereas light waves have provided a picture of the universe back to 400,000 years after the Big Bang, gravitational waves can give us information all the way back to a fraction of a second after the Big Bang. This groundbreaking discovery has marked the beginning of a revolution in astronomy. To clearly decipher these weak gravitational wave signals from instrumental noise, it is essential to carefully characterize the noise using statistical methods. A new Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, LISA, mission is being developed by the European Space Agency with the goal of launching in 2034. LISA will measure low-frequency gravitational waves, offering ringside seats to mergers of black holes and neutron stars, which are among the most enigmatic objects in the universe. Professor Mayer will lead a large interdisciplinary team, bringing together expertise in mathematics, computational science, fundamental physics, and novel statistical methodologies to make core contributions to gravitational wave science and facilitate participation in the LISA mission. The team will look at both the statistical challenges faced when attempting to extract the gravitational wave signals from the raw data and the properties of key sources of gravitational waves. LISA is a space-based gravitational wave detector that will consist of three identical spacecraft in a triangular configuration with sides of approximately 2.5 million kilometers. The team's goal is to build momentum for a decades-long collaboration with international teams in one of the world's most exciting scientific endeavors. By doing so, they will help realize the potential of gravitational wave observatories to advance stellar astronomy, galactic astrophysics, and fundamental particle physics. Well, good on you guys, and congratulations on being awarded a Marsden Fund Council grant. The New Horizons spacecraft has been speeding away from Earth since it launched in 2006. Scientists using the ALICE UV imaging spectrograph on board New Horizons have been patiently but sporadically gathering data during those 15 years, but also waiting to get far enough away from the sun to make a specific measurement, the brightness of the Lyman Alpha background of the Milky Way. Until now, this had never been measured accurately. The farther we moved away from the sun, the less we were blinded by the solar component of the Lyman Alpha background, said New Horizons team member Dr. Randy Gladstone, author of a new paper published in the Astronomical Journal. This has been something that had been, that's been guessed at by astronomers for decades. Now we have a much more precise number. Gladstone and his team used ALICE to make the observations of the Lyman, uh, Lyman Alpha background several times during the mission three times during the cruise to Pluto, another observation just one, one month prior to the mission's flyby of Pluto, as well as one day after and five times since then, out to just over 47 astronomical units from the Sun. What Alice found is that the galactic component of the Lyman Alpha background is about 20 times less bright than the Lyman Alpha background is near Earth. The Lyman Alpha, Alpha ultraviolet background was first detected in the 1960s, and until now, scientists have only been able to make estimates of how pervasive it is. These estimates have varied widely over the last 60 years. The Lyman Alpha ultraviolet background glow permeates space and can be used to characterize the tenuous wind of hydrogen atoms that blows through our solar system. Studying this wavelength of light, which is about four times shorter than what human eyes can see, allows astronomers to literally see in the dark. 
Observational cosmologists have been able to map out the distribution of matter in the universe and an instrument similar to ALICE on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter called LAMP, the Lyman Alpha Mapping Project, was used to measure permanently dark craters near the north and south poles of the Moon. In space, the galactic Lyman Alpha background comes from hot regions around massive stars, which ionize all the matter near them, which is primarily hydrogen. Hydrogen atoms between the stars scatter these photons into a roughly uniform glow throughout space. But in most of our solar system, the background is dominated by Lyman Alpha protons emitted by the Sun. The Lyman Alpha background has been studied a lot near the Earth's orbit and is bright enough that if we could see it, the night sky would never get darker than twilight, Gladstone explained in a press release. It's so bright from solar Lyman Alpha that we weren't certain how much the Milky Way galaxy contributed to its overall brightness. It's like standing near a street lamp on a foggy night. The fog scatters the lamp's light, making it hard to see anything else. Out in the Kuiper Belt, where New Horizons is traveling, the scattered sunlight component of the Lyman Alpha signal is far less bright, and the fainter components from the nearby regions of the Milky Way become easier to distinguish. The team said in their paper that a more precise measurement will help astronomers better understand the nearby regions of the Milky Way galaxy. What a great resource New Horizons is, said New Horizons principal investigator Alan Stern, not just for the exploration of the Kuiper Belt, but also to understand more about our galaxy and even the universe beyond our galaxy through this and other observations by our scientific instrument payload. Right, I'm just going to stop and take a quick break from now, just to mention our sponsors, the Holt Planetarium. The planetarium is located on Chambers Street, on the grounds of Napier Boys High School. It's currently closed during the COVID situation, but we're looking, hopefully, to be open early in the, again early in the new year. The planetarium is open to the general public, or will be open to the general public, on Sunday evenings, 7 p.m. until 9 p.m., with no bookings required. Admission fees are $10 for adults, $6 for students and seniors, $25 for a family of up to six. No bookings are required. We also will be, eventually, once we're open for business again, doing programs for school groups, scouts, cubs, senior citizens groups, and anyone else interested in coming and visiting us. The planetarium recreates an image of the night sky using a Zeiss planetarium projector. So, rain or shine, it's always a nice clear night in the planetarium under the dome. If you're interested in finding out more about the planetarium, please do visit our website, www.holtplanetarium.org.nz. Give us a call, 8344-345. But as I mentioned, we're currently closed. Hopefully that situation will improve and we'll be up and running again in the new year. Watch this space, so to speak. The field of extrasolar planet research has advanced by leaps and bounds over the past 15 years. To date, astronomers have relied on space-based and ground-based telescopes to confirm the existence of 4,566 exoplanets in 3,385 systems, with another 7,913 candidates awaiting confirmation. More importantly, in the past few years, the focus of exoplanet studies has slowly shifted from the process of discovery towards characterization. In particular, astronomers are making great strides when it comes to the characterization of exoplanet atmospheres. 
using the Gemini South Telescope, the GST, in Chile. An international team led by Arizona, Arizona State University, ASU, was able to characterize the atmosphere of a hot Jupiter located 340 light-years away. This makes them the first team to directly measure the chemical composition of a distant exoplanet's atmosphere, a significant milestone in the hunt for habitable planets beyond our solar system. The team's study was led by Assistant Professor Michael Lyne of ASU's School of Earth and Space Exploration, SESE. For this study, Lyne and his team focused on WASP-77AB, a gas giant with a mass of 2.29 Jupiters that orbits very close to its sun-like star, a G-type. With, its, with an average distance of 0.024 astronomical units, that's close. This hot Jupiter takes only 1.4 days to complete a single orbit of its star and experiences temperatures upwards of 1,093 degrees Celsius. The planet was spotted for the first time in 2012 by the wide-angle search for planets, the WASP campaign, using the transit method, transit photometry. This method consists of monitoring stars for periodic dips in luminosity, which are measured in time to determine the size and orbital period of any planets orbiting the star. Sometimes, astronomers can observe light passing through the atmosphere of the transiting exoplanet, which allows them to obtain spectra and determine what chemicals are present in the planet's atmosphere. This time, Professor Lyne and his colleagues obtained spectra directly from WASP-77AB as it orbited its host star. For the sake of their study, Lyne and his team hoped to obtain measurements on the atmospheric carbon and oxygen in WASP-77AB's atmosphere. The presence of these elements relative to hydrogen in hot Jupiters, relative to their host stars, is something astronomers are seeking, as it will provide insight into this strange class of exoplanet. In particular, astronomers hope to learn more about their formation and subsequent migration. As Professor Lyon explained in a recent ASU news release, because of their sizes and temperatures, hot Jupiters are excellent laboratories for measuring atmospheric gases and testing our planet formation theories. We needed to try something different to address our questions, and our analysis of the capabilities of Gemini South indicated that we could obtain ultra-precise atmospheric measurements. In the past, Lyon and his team have been extensively involved in measuring the atmospheric compositions of exoplanets with the Hubble Space Telescope. Unfortunately, Hubble's instruments can only measure the presence of water, inferred from the presence of oxygen, in a planet's atmosphere. Unfortunately, they cannot accurately measure the amounts of carbon compounds, such as carbon monoxide. This time, Lyon and his colleagues turned to the 8.1-metre telescope at the Gemini South Observatory, which is operated by the National Science Foundation's National Optical Infrared Astronomy Research Lab, NOIR Lab, I like that one, using the telescope's Immersion Grading Infrared Spectrometer, iGRINS, there's another good one, they were able to observe WASP-77AB directly and measure its near-infrared thermal glow. From this, they were able to determine the presence and relative amounts of water vapor and carbon monoxide in the planet's atmosphere. Said Line, trying to figure out the composition of planetary atmospheres is like trying to solve a crime with fingerprints. A smudged fingerprint doesn't really narrow it down too much, but a very nice clean fingerprint provides a unique identifier to who committed the crime. Whereas the Hubble Space Telescope was able to provide the team with one or two fuzzy fingerprints in the past, the iGRINS instrument on the Gemini South Telescope provided the team with a full set of clear chemical signatures. 
From this, they were able to constrain the relative amounts of oxygen and carbon in the exoplanet's atmosphere and its host star, all of which were in line with their expectations. These results are not only a major technical achievement, but also demonstrate how astronomers will be able to obtain ultra-precise measurements on the presence and abundances of various gases in exoplanet atmospheres. This is the key to exoplanet characterization, which allows astronomers to determine whether or not a planet can support life as we know it. In essence, this study was a pathfinder demonstration that shows what will be possible in the coming years. By the end of the decade, astronomers will have access to next-generation telescopes, including the James Webb Space Telescope and the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. In addition, several ground-based observatories will come online in the near future, including the Extremely Large Telescope and the Giant Magellan Telescope, both of which are currently under construction in the Atacama Desert in northern Chile. It's often said that in the earliest moments, the universe was in a hot, dense state. While that's a reasonably accurate description, it's also quite vague. What exactly was it that was hot and dense, and what state was it in? Answering that question takes both complex theoretical modeling and high-energy experiments in particle physics. But as a recent study shows, we are learning quite a bit. According to particle physics and the standard cosmological model, matter appeared within the first microsecond of the universe. This initial matter is thought to be a dense soup of quarks interacting in a sea of gluons. This state of matter is known as a quark-gluon plasma, QGP. The behavior of QGP is governed by the strong force, following the laws of quantum chromodynamics, QCD. While we understand QCD relatively well, the mathematics of the theory is so complex it is difficult to calculate. Even with supercomputers, it's hard to compute the, the state of dense quark gluon interactions. Well, I'm not going to get into more detail about this. There's still much to learn about the early universes. Studies such as these from the uh, Large Hadron Collider team are crucial to our understanding. They push the very limits of high-energy physics and continue to overturn our expectations. Right, well, that's going to do it for our program this month. Uh, Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Holt Planetarium. Even though they are currently closed, hopefully early next year they'll be up and running once again. My name is Gary Sparks. Thanks once again for listening to Starry Nights. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.